Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome to a new year of TV show and tell, your menu to the all-you-can-eat buffet of the television industry. I'm David Bodicum, I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scruggy, a TV content specialist known internationally as The Format Doctor. And our special guests today are Daniel Jones and Luke Hatfield from Vaudeville, specialists in what you're hearing right now, sound. Also, we'll be taking a look at two recent American game show remakes and discuss the pros and cons of spoilers. And so, start of the new year, and it's welcome back to Justin. How are you, Justin? I'm good, thanks. Yep. We are are so back, I feel. (laughs) I think that's the phrase that the youngsters are using. We are so back. We're so back. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you something that isn't going to be back, Justin, is uh, is a question of sports, which has been cancelled after... (laughs) Like I in in game show terms, I think decades is not the word. Like eons or Jurassic Ages or something it needs to be. I think it did actually have the record for the longest running quiz show on certainly British TV continuously. And yeah, it's, may, it's the may, longest running. Yeah, may even be worldwide. I'm not sure, but it, mm. yeah, it, it's the, mm. it's 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 very old. Yes, well, it's about as old as Sue Barker's jokes. I think. Um, <laughs> to be honest, Ooh. well, is that her fault? Yes, it's an interesting one, this. I call it the curse of Paddy McGuinness because whilst I am a big fan of Paddy McGuinness and, and I actually don't really think this is his fault, it has to be said that he has helmed four entertainment shows that have been cancelled in the last 12 months, um, which is quite a record. So that would be question of sport. What, uh, well, Top Gear has been wristed rest- for Oh, yeah, reasons. come on, yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, so what would the other two be? You're going to have to help me there. Catch point. Oh, yes, yeah. And I can see your voice. Yes. Well, the thing about catch point was the production company doesn't exist anymore. So, I mean... No, uh, that's true. Well, I mean, like I said, I think I don't actually think it's particularly his fault. You know, he didn't have the accident on Top Gear. Um, question of sport, maybe, but, you know, because the ratings did really plummet, they went... They, went down from 4 million to under a million, which is pretty terrible. But uh, again, it's one of those things where the legacy host kind of holds something together that had really got unbelievably tired. It was a terribly, terribly, terribly tired format. Um, And I think also people don't really realise how expensive all the clips are and things. So, you know, one of the things that Question of Sport has always suffered from is that back in the day... The BBC had rights to so much of the sport that was then used as clips on Question of Sport. So it was a cheap programme to make because it was a you know, it was just making use of the footage they had. And by the end, they had rights to almost none of it. So either they had to do chatty chatty questions or picture questions, or they had to pay a hell of a lot of money to Sky and, and Amazon for the clips that they used. 
and worse still, they, they would not be able to sub-license those. So in other words, the, there was no way of exporting a question of sport as a finished program at what's called a tape sale, even though we don't yeah. use tape anymore, uh, yeah. as a, a tape sale to other territories. <clears throat> Absolutely. So I, I'm I, to be honest, I think it's time it went. I think it's a hard thing to replace because I think, it's a, again, it's a legacy show that doesn't really have an equivalent. I you know, we, we've had other sports-related entertainment shows, you know, um, as we've gone along, and, and they've, you know, they've done very well. But I can't really see that anyone's scrambling to replace it. But as I said, it's been a it's been a bad year for that. And actually, the BBC, is, as, as well as that, in the last year, they've cancelled That's My Jam after one series. Um, they've cancelled Unbeatable. They've cancelled Eat Well for Less. They've cancelled Eat Shop, uh, Shop Well for Less. Um, Survivor must be on life support at this point. It's tricky. I mean, I think it just shows, A, how hard it is to come up with something new and why old shows hang on because even their legacy audiences are often bigger than the new audiences for a, a new show. But, you know, what do you think? Do you think they're clearing house or do you think it's just all about trying to save money? I think to some extent it is... They would argue, look, we've we've got so many formats that there's mm. going to be even if we only cancel ten percent of them, that means it's probably fifteen or twenty of them are going to get cancelled every year anyway because there's just mm. so so much stuff that we have to fill with our schedule. Mm. I was in France briefly recently, and it amused me that like on FR1 France. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> it, that's the France's equivalent of BBC One, right? Is, is that right? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in the mornings, they they basically had telecommercials, mm. and you can just imagine what would happen here if if that was the same for the BBC One here. So, no, I mean, I think the positive spin on it is that it's you know as it's clearing house, it's making space for other things, and so on. And the negative spin is that. You know they're expensive, uh, and they're not paying their way. Um, they're aimed at an old, older audience, so on and so on. But the challenge is to try to capture the same audience uh, with something new when there's so many other places to go, and it's uh, it's hard. A a collective shiver went down the spine of people who write questions for tv shows uh, right. this week because uh trivial pursuit online had uh, started a game an online game called trivial pursuit infinite right. and it was a game where they put in a, a, a batch of their old questions online uh, however <laughs> then what happened was that they said ah now we're going to start putting in some AI-generated questions into the mix. And then you can give us some feedback about whether you feel that question was a good question or a bad question. And question writers were going, uh-uh, is this going to start <laughs> getting rid of our, our jobs uh, or not? Early suggestions are no, <laughs> given that... <laughs> so this is a question on uh, music. What was the highest note a trumpet can produce? And the options are swinging band, ping pong, staccato beam, or double high C. Right. Uh, yeah. That's pretty random. 
Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me, I think it was in Reggie Perrin where they did a market survey to find the, the most favourite ice cream. And the answer was bookends ice cream in West Germany. And then uh, one about game shows somebody asked was, uh, which game show began that began in the 2000s had participants answer questions while riding a roller coaster? And it said that the of, of the options, there was Crystal Maze, Fear Factor, Total Wipeout, but apparently the correct answer was Brainiac Science Abuse, which was not a game show. And, of course, the, the actual real answer I think they were trying to go for was Scream If You Know The Answer. Yeah, yeah. So, the right, yeah, I mean, it, it's complete nonsense. Um, mm, mm. So I, I don't know what they're trying to do here other than make things cheaper and worse. So talking of technology, just a couple of two small stories that I've picked up. Um, the first is about teletext. Oh, now, yes. Now, for, for listeners of a certain younger age, um, Teletext was basically a news and information service, um, also called CFAX on the BBC, which was basically literally that. It was, it was information and news stories that were constructed using large pixels, um, but it did allow you to get a live feed of information on your TV. Now, this died a long, long time ago, but I discovered, uh, reading in the newspaper, that it is still alive and well in Sweden. Mm, yes. Where it continues to be popular and continues to be seen as a very trusted um, source of, of news, uh, which is interesting because it's almost a nostalgia factor that makes it feel safe because, you know, who'd hack teletext, you know? Um, it, it's very, it's very low techness, is what makes it um, feel reliable in a world of deep fake and everything else, which is fascinating. I thought. Well, I was delighted to find uh, randomly that there's a, a guy on YouTube who's called Nathan Dane, D A N E, and what he's doing is he's taking like uh, up to date news and weather and whatever sort of sports sources and then he's formatting them as live pages from cfax <laughs> so you can actually I still have the whole experience of of this sort of what they used, used to call a carousel of where it flicks through all the different pages for you automatically uh, as if you're watching on uh, like 2 p.m on bbc2 back in the old days it's brilliantly done there's seven people watching it now so i can't be the only person that to like it he's been streaming this since october 2023 seven. so there are seven people watching it yeah <laughs> okay all right well, I have to tell you, it's in Sweden, it's absolutely massive. Amongst 65 to 85-year-olds, it's 28% watching it of the country. Mm. Now, remember that Sweden has one of the oldest populations in the world, so that's another factor. So going to the other end of the extreme, um, CES is the um, sort of technology showcase uh, market that happens every year and it always throws up some oddities and innovations um, and amongst the category of technology you didn't know you needed um, i bring you transparent tvs yes the, the old witchcraft i've seen i've seen this yes <laughs> right well tell me you, you tell me about it then yeah 
Well, I, it just it was just the ma- the first major shot of of what I saw coming out of this conference was just like this. Literally, it just looks like a pane of glass stuck in a box, hmm. and then you just see color coming out of this pane of glass, and you can see completely through it. And is this something that we need? Is it do we do we need to be able to see through our TVs? Or well, when you were filming Codex, of- <laughs> exactly, that's very true. You are so right. Oh my god, I've forgotten that. Yes, I would have given my my right arm for that on Codex. That was uh, that was one of the. Uh- so to bring to bring everybody with us, you, you were trying to aim for sort of like a minority report style effect where the, the graphics appeared sort of sort of seamlessly as it so you could still see things in the background of the museum mm. and um and in the end you ended up just faking it all didn't you <laughs> we had to reproduce a lot of it in post just because the 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 lighting wasn't powerful enough mm. um the camera on the picture on a screen that was that was see-through as well yeah it was i I mean looking back on it i honestly can't remember why i made such a fuss about it because i really was something that i wanted and was something that the lighting and the tech people worked their socks off to deliver um because i just i didn't want monitors sitting in the middle of a gallery in the museum, um, I that think was that was the, a good choice. I think that you were absolutely right. It's just that perhaps it could have been one of those things where there was something that they looked at, but what the viewer saw might have been that something you're, else. You're right. That's right. We should have made that decision in the first place and have them look at something you know palely projected onto blue or green, and then made it all look nice in the edit, and would have given mm. us a lot of uh, a lot less pain. But anyway, there you are talking of pains, pains of glass. So I think that possibly the attraction there's a lot of um emphasis in in modern architectural design to kind of hide your television you know disguised as a mirror or a work of art or photo selection or something and i guess this also fits into that that this pane of glass can sit in your on your wall or in your bookcase and be something else or be completely see-through until such time as you wanted to see tv but normally when you're walking past people with big televisions, you, you can normally see what they're watching anyway. So they might as well, frankly, just turn their windows into their telly. So yeah, <laughs> just, just see what football match they're, they're watching um, as it is. Yeah, it's very true. Whether it's sound effects, background atmosphere, music tracks, or the human voice, it's easy to know when they just don't sound quite right. Daniel Jones and Luke Hatfield from Vaudeville Join us now to tell us all about sound design. So, as we know, television is a visual medium, but of course it's also an oral medium. That's A-U-R-A-L. Sound is as crucial as pictures to a film or a TV show success, even if we're not always conscious of its effect. And our two guests today are masters of sound. Daniel Jones is the CEO and founder of Vaudeville Sound Group, market leaders in creating ambitious and exciting sound design and mixing for scripted, unscripted, commercial, digital podcasts and more. So welcome, Daniel. Hi, hi, Justin. Thanks for having us. And we're delighted that joining us today as well is Vaudeville's group head of sound, Luke Hatfield. Welcome, Luke. Hello. Hi, guys. So as ever, let's just start with definitions. So what is a sound designer? Luke? A sound designer, fundamentally, from my point of view, is a storyteller. We, as sound designers, want to convey a story with sound. Pictures can lead this. 
But without a soundtrack, you've just got mute pictures. It's not that exciting. So we really complement and are heavily involved in that storytelling process. Sound design for me is that painting of an audio picture that really tells that story. That's that's the kind of focus that we always have mm. as, as sound designers. Yeah. And where does that story come from? I mean, are you are you obviously taking your lead from the production, the director, or whatever? Fundamentally, from the picture we see in front of us, and mm. we, we go, well, how best do we convey this story? And and a lot of our work as sound designers and, and sound mixers is cleaning up what's there. If there's something audibly wrong with your dialogue, your brain's very good at turning off and going, well, that's not very nice, and you will turn off mm. and not want, want, want to uh, participate and, and listen to it. So we really look at how to make it pleasing to the ear and that is very important in making people get involved in these stories is if it's nice to listen to so you know that that's fundamentally one of the, the starting points as well is how how do we clean this to make this as engaging and as nice as possible and then the creativity comes from that but it's the starting point of going you know dialogue is king it's it's the thing that we need to get sounding smooth and good you say pleasing to the ear but what are the things about sound that makes something pleasing rather than something that makes you go ow Daniel a big part of the job is believability of the brain as Luke said it's it's very quick for the brain to go hang on this is not right so it's it's one of those interesting things with our job is actually if it's noticed we've probably made a mistake mm. um it has to just solidly with the vision be a believable but emotive story so we do often use techniques to make you jump out your chair and stuff like that but it still has to connect your brain has to connect the visual and the and the sonic at the same time otherwise it is you just switch off and then you've lost the the viewer so let's imagine you've got a brief from a director or a producer of a show can you give a concrete example of what that brief would be like for a specific show yeah, so normally we'll get given a, a cut, hopefully before picture lock, and, and sort of start the discussions early because we, we like to be involved in it right from the beginning, even from pre-production and making sure what's being shot on location is what we expect to receive. And so we get ourselves involved quite early on. And the brief always from the start and right through to the end is kind of continuity of, of dialogue. Everyone's concerned about how, is this going to sound smooth all the way through? And so if it's presenter-led, we need to make sure that presenter has the same microphones all the way through. And, and if they're in really varying locations, how do we kind of control that and, and still make it sound, I think smooth is the way I'd like to say it, but like it's make it sound that nothing's jarring and nothing's out of the ordinary. And, and like Dan said, believability. So a lot of the time we'll then see the cut and it'll be quite a different story from, from when we've been in all the meetings and the presenter or whoever's on screen will have done a pickup line in a different location and then they'll present the cut to us and say well we had to do a few pickup lines and it sounds very different and then your brain jumps out straight away where you hear this really echoey piece of dialogue that's then in a cut away from a nice close sounding recording and so that's a lot of time of the brief is this needs to be smooth and believable and so we get to work on ways of making that work especially if we can't get them back in to record it again oh. and of course we're in storytelling and no one says things the way they should and we need to edit it afterwards and so a lot of the time they'll present 
a sequence in in programs that is a, a Franken edit, an edit that they've cut together that isn't something that the contributor said, and it's it's making those believable because again it jumps out if you hear a, a word that isn't meant to be there, you you <laughs> you really go oh, and, and and then the audience goes, am I being cheated? Are they trying to get them to say something? And and we need to take that doubt away and tell the story as as the director intended. Uh, or as even the contributor intended, but didn't quite get their words right. That is also a, a big part of the brief is, hey, guys, is this going to work? And and so we actually get ourselves involved in the edit again early and go, what sequences aren't working? And we'll do that preliminary work and see, is this believable? Is this going to work? Because we don't want to get to picture lock and go, this isn't going to work. Daniel? That's such an important thing for us is the involvement throughout the whole the collection, the shoots, and also the edit. And we're constantly feeding in and getting feedback. So what happens there is the creatives, the directors, producers, the editors all get to sit with certain sound design work. So they they know that it's already working well with the visual. But with regards to sort of from a brief to actually what we deliver. I mean, we can talk about the 007 Road to a Million for Amazon Prime Video, which has just come out. And obviously, that's a huge deal for us, huge deal for Amazon. But of course, it is very much based on the whole 007 world. So the dynamics and the detail and the level of work that went into that show is filmic. Okay. And that's all that's all considered way before anyone's shot anything, right? That's getting involved with the sound recorders in a big way to make sure they're collecting all these because as you know, you know it's there's so many locations, so many different environments. Um, so we needed to get a very good wild track build up library of that. and in fact, we sent Luke off to record at Aston Martin as well and that was a terrible day. <laughs> The level of detail uh, required in that show was, yeah, say, uh, extensive, which is what we love mm. as well. Just explain what a wild track is for us. Uh, we're, we're looking, when we ask for wild tracks from sound recorders, we, we want the silence, in inverted commas, the, the, the natural sound of the environment of the shoot recorded clean, minimum stereo. Hopefully we get Amazonic these days so we can build uh, immersive libraries and, and, and uh, immersive mixes from. But um, yeah, you want to have the ambient sound of those environments. We call them wild tracks because we're not recording them against any action. We just want the, the nothingness. And that we use to not only have a level of believability to each scene, because you you want that as a the core of what we do is believability mm, right so mm. we want that in the scene but also if for some reason we can't use that sound we still want that wild track in there to give us the actual reference point of what did this sound like on location and how can we build on it put in more detail that wasn't able to capture what would suit that environment it's like a palette mm. of colors but... yeah and and so the, the guys did an amazing job on, on capturing sound in, in, for Road to a Million, but, well, the, the brief for this is kind of the pedigree of Bond. That is the brief. You, you know what it should, a Bond, Bond film should sound like. So we did a little <laughs> watching session of some Bond movies. Oh, no. and That was a little bit of research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, on, on, on the clock. And um, it was great just to sort of focus in on, especially how modern Bond films have been sound design and mixed, and that was a great reference point for us. And hence, us going down to Aston Martin was... Great, because although you can capture sounds on location, hmm. 
in a in a sort of entertainment world, you're shooting your contributors, you're sort of focusing on all the things that are happening. But actually, in a filmic world, we're we're looking at the micro details. So, I went over to Aston Martin and to Jaguar. Well, they were great. I could strap microphones right in the depths of the car, exhaust pipe under the bonnet, getting all the sounds of those cars so that the character is there. When you do a quick close-up on a on a, a wheel or an accelerator away, the wild track from the location isn't that exciting. It's a very nice, natural sound. But in these instances, you don't want a natural sound. You want that grit. You want that closeness. You want that that sort of that filmic dynamic to it. And so that's what we were able to, to go and get as well. And it was great to, to have that opportunity. And uh, yeah. Did you have to create any sounds that weren't there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's part of the sound design process. Once we've done the, the dialogue and, and done laid in all the ambiences and the wild tracks and that sort of thing then the sort of creative side of the sound design process can really take hold and um yeah there was one bit that we sort of worked as a team so we had a, a main sound designer on it and then myself and my assistant sort of duck in and just see what they're working on that day and just want to <laughs> stick our oars in and get involved really especially when it's on a bond thing yeah and um there was a scene where the contributors were shooting laser guns right and um, they have to do these tasks and these contributors were shooting these lasers and uh, because they're not shooting real guns, it's quite an underwhelming event when that gun goes off. And so it's like, well, how do we, how do we make this not only believable, exciting, and Bond-like? Those are kind of like our three things of it's got to do something when they shoot. And there was actually quite a long scene, quite a lot of shots are going off. And then you go, well, hang on, it's got, it, it can't be annoying because it goes off every three seconds. <laughs> and so the challenge there is actually, well, all those things come together. And actually, it was just a, a quite a nice way of, layering some sounds and we've always focused on like a little easter egg of what's bondy and uh we were in growing up in the was it growing up in the mid 90s there was a uh, famous bond game goldeneye and so we were sort of all thinking well what the gunshots like in that and sort of slightly bond-esque and so we ended up with um whenever they clicked the 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 gun we put in an artificial click so it sounded like there's an actual action there so we built up the click then we built up an element of it has to have some weight behind it because there's no sound at all or movement coming out of it. So we ended up with like a, a punch sound mixed in with a silencer. And obviously Bond and the silencer <laughs> is quite a, it sort of straight away goes, yeah, that sounds Bond-like. And then we're like, it's just not quite menacing enough. So we ended up with a little, you know, when old-fashioned cameras, when you press the flash and you get this this little rise <laughs> at the end of that and so we put that at the end of every gunshot so it was like along with the punch and the and the click and suddenly we're like that sounds like a bond gun even though it's not you know <laughs> shooting loudly and just so it's those little things that are really fun but now it. thinking about it we should have just recorded luke doing those sounds instead of spending all those hours building that <laughs> that was it Fantastic. but yeah things like that so we had lots of elements like that that we could we could you know, play around with and, and just try and and that's the sound designer's job was that we, we we try and put in those little moments that no one really notices but if it if it adds to the believability that's our that's our goal was that one of your challenges david uh no i because the production went on a little bit longer than expected i'd uh, drifted away from that point uh, because there's only a few people left at that point so uh I helped on that show with the um, how much money to give away and right. how many couples did we need at each stage and and things like that so well, let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous. So let's go from Bond to the repair shop. You guys did the sound design for the repair shop as well, is that right? Yeah. That's filmed in a in a thatched museum. 
in Sussex. So that must be quite a difficult space to capture clean sound and it's a slightly different skill set it's, it's it's less of the sort of fun creative but more the kind of uh, well go back to this word smooth we want to make sure this sounds classy it, it looks beautiful so we, we have to make sure it sounds as beautiful so we spend a lot of time making sure all the mics and all the dialogue edits and all those things are as good as they can be because we've been working on it a while there's a, a a big part of this is communication mm. So that we make sure that when the editors get all the source material, it is all clip grouped and, li- and linked and what have you. So w- whenever we get our sequences, we can rely on the fact that we know we've got the best microphone sources for that. And we can get to town on making sure those are really clean. And when I talk about clean audio, we're talking we don't want excessive noise. We want to make sure that the frequency range is balanced nicely. So, you know, a lot of microphones will end up being under under a jumper or something. So we're like, okay, so how do we, how do we make sure that each person sounds as clear and as as nice as possible? And it's an emotional show, right? People get very emotional when they're talking about those artifacts, and it's important that oh, oh. even the littlest kind of like the, the smallest little reaction is is all about that human element. And if we can make sure it's there, mm, it's getting the kind of gulp or the slight intake of breath. Or you're quite right, absolutely. And so that's what we focus on in that in the time we've given to, to to just bring those moments out. And again, we're not trying to cheat anything, not trying to do it artificially. We're just trying to make sure that we represent what uh, the emotion of the, of those contributors. Yeah. And it's a show with a lot of lot of detail in it as well. So like you have to get really anal about it. Like you brush that statue with this tiny brush and not that tiny brush. <laughs> Definitely, Daniel. Definitely. And it's there's a there's a logistics thing there, isn't there? And uh, I mean another series we're lucky enough to work on is first dates and then that's 96 mics wow and 42 video streams in that restaurant and it is a restaurant because that's what channel 4 wanted to keep that real you know they didn't want people walking into a set although obviously that would have been a lot easier to uh, assemble that much stuff but and also they kind of want people again to ignore the cameras and the mics as much as possible so they're hiding mics in the flower pots and everywhere you know and so but we've been lucky enough to work on that from when it begun and we that's one where we we had quite a lot of meetings before anyone did anything and then when they were rigging the restaurant we went down and spent quite a lot of time with the sound recorders there just to make sure what we got back was good to go and it's yeah quite big logistics a lot of tracks and actually it's it's a very quick edit and process that show as well so that's the other thing is the time and of course budgets on the various projects we're lucky enough to work on vary hugely we'd love to throw everything in the kitchen sink at everything we do but there's also well actually if this is being cut like a, almost like a current affairs show and needs to get out then it's about yeah clarity being very precise mm. and um, getting out the door, but obviously keeping that high level of output. Because post is, by definition, post-production. It, it's quite a way down the timeline often. And uh, I know from being a producer that as the budget gets spent, <laughs> as you go along and you think, oh, well, we're just going to have to spend this money now or book that car or do that extra day or something, then that tightness of budget is is working its way down the timeline yeah it's so right justin but it, it that's actually what vaudeville was about is 
yeah, and obviously audio posts is at the very end of the whole process. So is we try and reverse that. And that's why we get into pre-production mm. meetings. And they always go like, why is the audio post guy here? It's like, we haven't even got a DOP yet. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 we want to muscle in there because it's to have those conversations, understand what people's ambitions are at that point. Mm. And then obviously what's in the edit is often very different from those initial ambitions. But it is also actually to to go, well, okay, if there's an opportunity for a valid, important bit of sound design work in a show, then I find that, you know, if it's discussed and a production manager's got that in a budget somewhere, then it, it remains isolated. It's there. That's true. But if you have that conversation at the end of the road, as you say, all the budget's gone. It's all over. You know, it's just you can't really have those conversations at the end point. Right. Mm. So we that's one of the things we try and do. In the UK, we've been inundated with a number of remakes, uh, two of which we're going to briefly discuss. Well, we've had new shows uh, launching. Uh, well, I say new shows, old shows <laughs> relaunching, <laughs> coming back. Of course, um, one of them is Wheel of Fortune, which I watched over the weekend with Graham Norton. Kind of a strange experience, to be honest. I, I don't know. I was trying to work out what was weird about it. And I think it is the fact that it's kind of the old and the new arriving at the same time. So, you know, you've got this big glitzy set and yet what happens in it is really basic and then kind of in one corner, which is a bit odd. Um, you know, we've got the, the hangman game and the wheel. That's it. Um, secondly, you've got this, you know, they've, they've taken the hangman board and now it's digital. Whoopee. But so it manages to look new and dated at the same time. And I think in some ways that applies to Graham Norton too, that he's sort of both old and new. You know, he's a new host, but he's also a very familiar host. And he's basically working his way through the same phrases, the same catchphrases, you know, the same talking over the audience applause as always. So that's, yeah, that was my first feeling about it. But these are some of the points that long-time US game show fans have had about the Wheel of Fortune because uh, Pat Sajak is retiring. Mm -hmm. I think there's been some fossilization of the way that the game has just been treated. That The fact that we've been able to kind of refresh some things, in other the, in the words, we've been allowed to, to drop our vanner uh, and just have the board do the letters. Mm. Um, we've been able to have slightly simpler wheel with more varied amounts on it. The puzzles are a little bit more playful, a little slightly more cryptic, mm. rather than it just being, you know, yellow taxi is, is the phrase that ours are a little bit more... Uh, mm. inventive um, so and also I think they like our set better than their current set and uh, so yeah. they're, they're kind of looking at our version slightly jealously I think it's fair to say taking the, the, the general temperature but I don't think the ITV audience give a shit about what the American version is like but to, exactly to your point I think there's a lot of referencing to it I think a lot of the the, the the phrases are oh you know that's the thing we always say and you know the audience at the beginning shout out wheel of fortune but it hasn't been on air for what is already 23 years or something 
But, and, and we never did the wheel of. And then we ever did it anyway. So, uh, so yeah. the it's an homage to things, something that people don't know anyway. Which is, which is, again, it's all part of this slightly weird old new thing. I think it's also a testament to the fact that producers are now open more to the concept of people will have seen these things on holiday mm. uh, or on the internet where perhaps 40 years ago that, that might not have been quite uh, as easy to do. I mean, the same way that like our version of Jeopardy is fairly faithful to the American version. We've got an American logo um, and uh, the fonts and everything. The, the set's fairly similar to the American version. Again, that's that's quite a, quite a heavy homage. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think, I mean, there's two two other aspects to it. The first of which is that it really points up the fact that when you commission an old game show, the role of the host is also old. So, you know, in days gone by, the host was there to smile at people and read the autocue and come out with the catchphrases. These days in a game show, we have a whole other set of things we expect the host to do. But I think both Graham Norton and Stephen Fry are trapped by the fact that essentially they've got to do the job that somebody was doing, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So their 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 personalities seem very, very restricted by all of that. And secondly, is the length, because whenever you revive an old show, particularly a game show, and particularly from a long time ago, you're almost certainly reviving something that was a half hour show in the past which means you've got to fill it out. Um, checking the last time that ITV did Wheel of Fortune, it had crept up to 45 minutes. Now it's crept up to an hour. And albeit we have more commercial breaks, but my God, it feels padded, don't you think? It's not just the case of it's gone from a half hour to an hour. It's also that it's an American commercial hour, which is, I think, I've seen on the internet some episodes of Jeopardy being about 20 minutes. Mm. And then our commercial hour is about 46. Mm. So we we are more than doubling <clears throat> the amount of actual content. I think that has definitely hurt Jeopardy. I really wanted Jeopardy to work because I, I like Jeopardy. I, mm. I, I like the playfulness of the categories. Mm. And I think they actually have done a good job of the question material on, on our version. However, there's a lot of incidental pauses in terms of explaining how the, some of the categories work or explaining the rules or repeating which category in a, a value amount mm. they've chosen. Or Stephen might have a little anecdote or a little factoid to throw in. And all of this weighed-in baggage has... It's not just one gear change slower, it's actually two. Yeah. And so you're, you're driving in third gear and not fifth. And, um, I mean, like, the US version of Jeopardy was going so fast, they started to do things like the, the when you cut up the value amounts at the start of a, of a round of Jeopardy, it goes boop, 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 like that. <laughs> they had to cut that for time <laughs> because that four-second sound effect oh. was getting in the way of their edits. Wow. And, like, Ken Jennings, uh, the host, said, 
I'm a real fan of the boop boops. I think he said something yeah. like that. The boop boop boops, and and so they brought it back. I think because people did sort of go, "Hang on a second, I'd, I'd like the boop boops. Why didn't you why didn't you cut the boop boops for sort for four seconds? It seems ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. But that's how fast they were going. And you go to the other extreme with this, which is that when you make a half hour show, or even a forty five minute show, you can more or less play the same round over and over again. Once you get into a into an hour slot, you need to have acts to your game. You know, it needs to progress. It needs to move somewhere. You need to feel you're on a journey. And certainly with, with Wheel of Fortune, I didn't feel that. I felt like, you know, we were spending more or less the whole time doing more or less the same game over and over again. And I just don't think the slot allows for that. I think it's, it's, it's too long. But, you know, what do I know? My solution for Jeopardy would have been, um, given that they had effectively half our game that needed to fill an hour slot, is to use a trick that I saw uh, BBC2 use for perfection with Nick Knowles, mm. which had the very clever thing of just basically playing the game twice. It, it, it was a game that naturally lent itself to being about 20, 22 minutes. So rather than stretch it to half an hour, they said, we've got a 45-minute slot. We'll just play the game once, and then halfway through, we'll just get on and play the second game. And I just mm. thought, well, that's... I, I know why they couldn't do it, mm. because you would have had to pay out twice as much money, effectively. You had to pay out the money at half past the hour and again at the top of the yeah. hour. But... I think it would have made for a lot better show. Unfortunately, in ratings terms, it seems to be sliding away. It started off sort of above 2 million, and then I think one of the most re- recent shows it overnighted at 1.2. Mm. Now, maybe people sort of go, well, now we know it's on. I can just watch it and catch up, maybe. Yeah. But but again, I think this does come back to the host a little bit. You know, we, we in one sense, there are two categories of entertainment host you know one is the person that's in charge of a game you really want to see and the other one is the host that you want to spend time with um you know the kind of terry wogan slot (laughs) effectively and strangely i think both graham and stephen are in the latter category it's it's people are tuning in for them and the danger is that the nature of the game is that and the nature of the legacy of the game is that you're not getting that. And if people don't get that, then they won't stay with it. Well, the the commissioning of Jeopardy has a slightly interesting story, I, I think, because they mm. already piloted it with a different production company with Richard Maidley at the helm. And for whatever reason, it didn't go anywhere. And then Stephen Fry's agent... I was just chatting to him about like uh, well, while you're over in American, Steve, what what are you going to spend your time doing there? And he just said, "Oh, I know, I'll just go over there and relax and watch a bit of Jeopardy." Really like Jeopardy, and his agent went, "Oh, really?" And so, <laughs> so the next time they spoke, his, his agent rang him up and said. ITV are really excited about you hosting Jeopardy, and like, was going like, "What?" <laughs> Anyway, so and a completely different production company, and him was just like the perfect package to sort of go. Okay, now we're talking about appointment to view hosts, and and that's what's got the project over the line. Right, right, so, right, right. That's the team. And now it's time to go back to our chat about all things sound with Daniel and Luke from Vaudeville. 
I believe you've prepared a clip for us, so uh, which is from the factual realm. So would you like to sort of cue that up for us, what that's about? Luke? Because we do a lot of immersive mixing in a lot of the projects we do, and we work on all sorts of genres of things, I just wanted to sort of give some people some ideas of, of what those immersive sound design moments can sound like. This is taken from a podcast we do, which is uh, called Amazing War Stories. It started out as a charity where in lockdown, museums were in grave danger of closing. And so Bruce Crompton uh, and exec producer Ed Sayer came up with this idea to create this podcast called Amazing War Stories, which was to tell these stories of unsung heroes of, of war and get people to go back to museums when they were able to and donate and all that sort of thing. And this, the scripts we saw were like just lended themselves so much to putting in some sound design and make these quite exciting and engaging. And then we, were, we got carried away with ourselves and we're like, yeah, let's do it immersive. We'll do all these sound effects and sound design and Foley. And like, it just kind of, the idea ran away with us uh, during lockdown. And um, these examples are just some cold openings of these podcasts. So instead of the usual, hi, welcome to this podcast, we would just go in cold with these these little sound design moments to try and set the scene for the story you're about to see, you know. And Okay, well, let's have a, a listen to some of those now. cold evening of the 20th of December 1943, over 650 Allied planes took off from their bases in England and headed for Germany. Bomber Command wanted a So that's that sounded great. So obviously, from a from a historical point of view, the the main problem you've got though is like trying to be historically accurate. Do you get people sort of saying, well, that that was a, a four cylinder engine and not a six cylinder engine? You got that completely wrong. Luke, it's funny because we, we we come across this as sound designers in in all areas where someone goes, oh, that bird isn't native to that background at that time of year. <laughs> you know, so so as sound designers, we kind of all are conscious about those things anyway. And um, we've just done a, a Netflix World War Two series that's about to land on December the 7th called World War II from the front lines and so with with doing prep work for that and doing the war stories thing we've built up quite a big library of accurate sounds and so it's always at the forefront of us using those sounds in the right place and so we'll try and make sure that it's at least a similar tank in certain situations or, or exactly the right weaponry and all that sort of thing but having said that we are also in telling stories and so we also bolster these things. So a lot of the time I'll go, right, well, that is the right rifle, but here's like a cannon behind it, you know, to give it uh, uh, some weight behind it and give it, you know, Hollywood does that. We're not being scientific about it. We are, we are telling a story. And so, so stories aren't scientific. So we, we, we nod to the, to the realism and then create fun stuff as well to it. <laughs> yes, I remember reading about a sound designer who I think enhances the sounds of a door slamming with a hand grenade going off. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's that, it's that thing. 
if you see a pistol, you hear a rifle. If you hear a rifle, you hear a machine gun. Like, you know, you, you, you make it bigger. You make it bigger, 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 bigger. If you've got something that's, like, completely lost, it's an early 1908 mechanical car or plane or something. That, that There might be video footage of it from a long time ago, but there's no sound recording of it. What on earth do you do in that instance? Experiment. <laughs> Again, going just back to believability, we're always like, well, what would that sound like? What, what, how can we best represent that and make it believable? And we have a great Foley team over in, in, in Canada. And you just explained Foley for our listeners. Foley is a, a recreation of sound, movement, everything that again your brain is seeing something and is expecting to hear it so this is from basic footsteps to the rustle movement of a jacket but also to create those sounds as you mentioned just we, we use some extremely strange various pieces of metal and things we find at old secondhand shops and that which then create a sound you go yeah that's exactly what that is but it's often the article being used to create the sound is very different from what your brain thinks the sound is i remember you coming into work having spent the night chopping various brassicas on your kitchen table to get the sound of a true beheading <laughs> yeah <laughs> a, lot, a lot of fruit and veg is destroyed in the making yeah. of uh, <laughs> <laughs> but going back to going back to david's question about how you know when you've got a completely lost sound so you know you, you keep talking about quite rightly about a sort of believability mm. plausibility and at the same time you've got something for which there isn't a sound so how do you find that balance between the freedom to make your own sounds because there isn't one uh, or isn't one that people would recognise, but at the same time, having viewers just literally watch it and just assume that's the sound. We we work as a team a lot, and so we always layer up multiple versions of something, and then you'll just get a sound designer to come in and go, what do you think of this? And if they don't comment on it, hmm. then we go, we've already passed one believability test with someone. And, and so, and if they go, oh, where did you get that sound from? Or if if it jolts in any way, then we know we probably haven't nailed it. And, and instinct is that thing if there's a doubt in your mind about something uh, i always find that sound designers have this that they just it niggles with them and they go yeah that isn't right and then you know we go back and so yeah just experimentation and and testing with peers is always a really good start to, to, <laughs> to see if it is and then the client goes i either love it or hate it or never even noticed and if he hasn't noticed then he or she hasn't noticed then it's great and then we've and we've done it <laughs> Does it bother you, though, if people don't notice something that you might have put hours of work into? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I mean, it's just like with my parents, and if they see something that I've done, they go, yeah, it looked great. I'm like, <laughs> it's like no, no, it, yeah. it, sounded, or, it sounded great. Or the, the, <laughs> music, like, the music's lovely. Yeah, you did a great lovely. job with the music. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm not actually a composer, but, yeah, yeah. you know. It, it's, if, if you remove it, right, it, then anyone would just go, hang on, there's something not right here. So it, it's, yeah, many layers to make a textual background sometimes that just pass people by. But if it wasn't there, people would just leave the story, right? And go, yeah, I'm not in this. So if you're talking about something like a game show, again, we're in a slightly different oral world where sound is front and center, sound punctuates the action um, it, uh, it's applied to points and sound sets the atmosphere for elimination so tell us about that kind of world and what sort of palette you build up for that Daniel in a game show it's pointers right it's deliberate achievement points throughout so you're just trying to create 
that sense of achievement or failure and trying to um, bookend those certain parts of the show that people like you guys spend so long making sure, right, that has a flow and a purpose and is making sense and that continuity as well. Justin, we've spent a lot of time on those very small elements, but so vital to, right, that happened, that's there, now we move on, this is there. So I, I sort of see them as as sort of pointers or, or yeah, bookends. In terms of the future, obviously AI is impacting everybody's work. From your point of view, what are the pros and cons of AI? Luke? I'm a bit of a tech geek and I just, I, I embrace these AI technologies as soon as as soon as I see them, I'm I'm, I'm jumping on them and, and seeing what we can use, and, and I just see them as as a tool, much like our compressor is or an EQ is. It's an it's another tool that will help us achieve what we're trying to achieve. And if it takes time off somewhere, great, I can use that time to be creative or or what have you. And so, what we have found with these AI tools is um, some of them aren't very transparent. So again, we come back to the believability. If you've feel like it's been messed with or fake in any way oh. uh that's not our goal we won't we don't want to we don't want to see and hear that so we're just about how to embrace these and use these technologies to, to our advantage and to how the client needs or wants them ai has been great for us in terms of noise reduction there's been massive leaps forward in being able to clean up dialogue and work through all those things that would take us hours to to save and to salvage even it might salvage an entire shoot we've had situations where i've i've gone back to the client going it all is not lost <laughs> and that is quite a, that's quite a nice thing to be able to go back to do you know it's uh, ai's been fabulous and, and there's so many developers specifically doing ai tools for audio and so is that that's going to be the first time anyone said ai is fabulous i know well everyone yeah, else seems to be I, terrified <laughs> of it you know? yeah, yeah. but i think luke's right it's it's another tool in the toolbox but at the end of the day you do need the human to take a yeah. creative and learn a decision. And like all the other tools and plugins and things we use, you use it with subtlety mm. and with slight, not like just chucking something on and hoping it comes out uh, sounding natural. Well, that's the thing. I mean, as the human ear is so well-tuned, as you said, to notice the tiniest error or a thing out of place or whatever, and until AI can do that, then you'd absolutely have to have that mm. ear yourself to be able to do it. For sure. And it's like, you know, an aeroplane can fly itself, but it's still going to have a captain up front to, to make a decision. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we had that recent Beatles single where it was the first time that they've been able to extract this John Lennon vocal. Again, that puts us another example of, a, of it being a tool. I suppose you're not fearing for your jobs, though, in terms of all of these things where people can just sort of type in some words and say, give me a sound effect for a buzzer and it'll just generate something. Uh, finding sounds through AI, I'd be excited about. There's a limit of what we can do in our time. And if AI can generate more options of what we can then use as a palette, then I'm all for it. So I've not seen anything that goes, a sound mixer, sound designer will not be needed. There is these technologies that exist which are visual to audio. So you put in a, a picture of a, of a meadow and you'll get some meadow sound effects out. And so they're like, well, yeah, but then they'll just do the whole film and it'll give you sound effects. I'm like, yeah, it'll give you a starting point, but it won't tell the story. It should just give you more choices, so more decisions that can be made to, to get a better end product. 
And if people are interested in sound design and want to get into the industry, what are the entry routes? It helps if you've worked in hospitality, like in a bar or a restaurant. And I'll tell you why, because we sit in dark rooms for many hours with all sorts of humans. And if you can get on with other people, that's a big part of the battle. Because especially with creative people, you've got not just egos and stuff, but you've also got, we've got to try and get out of someone's head what they're thinking about sound and not not everyone in the creative world in our who we work with are very good at describing sound because it is a hard thing to describe so we've got to try and listen a lot and get in there and go okay i think i know what you need for this job so so that sort of dealing with lots of different people thing is uh, a great asset to have and then of course there are technical and creative elements on top of that but um just on that again if you were starting off what what would the basic kind of affordable piece of kit be that you know you would encourage people to say well if you if you have that if you've got something to start with then this is a journey you can begin the bare minimum is is a is a laptop a desktop computer and some sort of DAW, so digital audio workstation, is the great starting point. In any of those, you can layer up the sound, layer up anything, put music tracks in, just start editing and moving things around. And there's a free one, DaVinci Resolve has uh, Fairlight in it. We mostly use Pro Tools. There's a free version of Pro Tools. It's slightly limited in its functionality, but that's also free. Reaper, there's quite a lot to actually just get going with. And actually, most people, when they uh, approach us as as a group, people have been playing with sound design from like as a teenager you know especially because of gaming as well and just they know it's an important element of stuff they've just had as entertainment at home so they've it's quite nice that there is that easy access to to play with some of these free software because they've already got quite a good idea that they enjoy it and also that they're actually quite good at it actually they come in pretty competent rather than start from absolute scratch yeah, yeah got some aptitude yeah mm, fantastic you'll be back later for show and tell but uh, luke and daniel from vaudeville tv thanks very much indeed for being on tv show and tell thanks for having us thank, thank you, So, in the UK, we've had the third series of Limitless Win, the quiz where, at least in theory, you can win an infinite amount of money, uh, hosted by Anton Deck. And there's been a bit of a kerfuffle uh, in the Mm -hmm. news and in the fandom about whether they've actually spoiled the show. And I use that word advisedly because it's uh, all about spoilers um so spoiler alert <laughs> uh, but there has been a one million pound winning couple on the show it had been officially released as a as that this is something that's going to happen right. uh, the production company had let this be known and other uh, parts of the press had uh, picked up the story and then in addition I think uh, Ant and Deck themselves put out a social media post saying, spoiler alert. And, um, well, this is always a tricky thing, isn't it? It's it's about you want to get people watching your show and then you want to drum up any, any big wins to get people watching. But does it actually help? Does it make people watch or does it spoil the experience so much that people go, oh, actually, I don't... I know what happens. I don't even need to to tune in now. Mm. 
it's an interesting one, the psychology of spoilers, really. I think in that instance, I can see that actually it's a very good piece of marketing because you're going to attract people to the show who haven't seen it before. You're probably not going to lose many of the people who have seen it before. Um, so from that simple point of view, I think it's it's good value. There is also the factor that a lot of people feel um, anxiety about not knowing the endings to things. You know, we're, we're so obsessed with the idea that you don't want to know the ending. I remember as a child, I had a friend who I would say, I would recommend a book to him and I'd hand it to him. And he, the first thing he'd do would be to turn to the back <laughs> to find out what would happen. And I found that unbearable. I just thought, please, what are you doing? Um, but he enjoyed the book more if he knew how it, how it ended. I happen to know that there is actually research about this. Okay. Uh, they gave people two different groups... 10 stories one group just got the, the regular story but the other group they was like a, an introductory paragraph at the top where they give away a major plot twist or a major mm. resolution to say I, and it all turns <coughs> out okay in the end or, or whatever it is and the people that were spoiled they preferred nine out of the 10 stories more when they were spoiled than when they weren't Right. So I think this is called processing fluency. I think that's oh. the phrase. So processing fluency is your ability to understand the plot effectively. That's what it is. And some people prefer, by knowing where something's heading, they get more out of what they're watching because they can see the moment when somebody makes you know, a, a fundamental mistake that's going to have consequences later on. Or they can see the moment where two people are fighting, but you know they're going to fall in love at the end, um, and so on. So it actually makes it easier for people to unpack and process what they're watching while they're watching it. If everybody hated spoilers, nobody would ever watch a repeat. Or, or turn out to watch Titanic as a film. Yeah, or, turn out, or, or, or any rom-com, <laughs> basically. It's like, I'm sure they get, to, I'm sure they get together at the end. Um, no, but it's true. I think we watch things again because we actually get something else out of it. And I think a lot of writers now, uh, you know, particularly for these long, long series on, on, uh, on the streamers, they do take this into account that they have intricate plots that if you watch them again, you get a whole load of other stuff out of it that you didn't notice at the time. And therefore, you're actually building in repeat viewing. Just looking at the, what's happened to this in the past, I mean, mm. we had uh, the last one million pound winner on Millionaire in the UK was Donald Fear. And they they spoiled that by saying someone's going to win the top prize at uh, this series. Right. And what happened was the series trundled on, trundled on, trundled on, no winner, no winner, winner. And it was like, the last show of the series, let's bring on our last contestant. It's Donald Fear. <laughs> and it's like everyone's still going, okay, this is the guy that's going to win the million pounds. Um, on the other hand, presumably they got people tuning in all the way through the run to think maybe this is the time. So, yeah, you know, maybe. I mean, 
that's the way I look at it. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do hate spoilers. I, I mean, I hate going to the cinema and watching a, a, a you know, an eight-minute trailer or something, which is basically an edited version of what I'm about to watch the next time I go to the cinema. But again, I've talked to other people about it, and what they say is it costs, you know, fifteen, twenty quid to go to the cinema on your own, let alone with somebody else. Um, and I want to know what I'm going to go and see. Margot Robbie has spoken out about this, I think, just this week. She mm-hmm. said that she, she thinks that trailers should give you the kind of feeling of mm. a film, but not actually show you what is in the film. And she's battled with the execs, and the execs say, yeah, it rated really well. And she's going, well, yes, because everybody now knows <laughs> the entire plot. And yeah. no no, no wonder if people enjoy it. There's, there's nothing left to surprise people with yeah. if they go to the But story. like I said, I think the reason is that the, the 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 experience suggests that people want to know what they're going to consume before they consume it. It's the reason why genres matter, you know, in in entertainment and drama. That if people are going to go and see a rom com, they want to know it's a rom com, and they want to know that it ends happily and blah 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 before they sit down to watch it. I I, I, took, I took I took my mother to see a film called The Mother. Um, and what I didn't realise was that it was going to involve a naked Daniel Craig, um, <laughs> which uh, I sat there absolutely dying. Um, but she told me afterwards that she thought he was quite hot. So that was that. And then, uh, uh, well, we, we remember... <laughs> Where are we going now, David? <laughs> but, I mean, I'm, this image is stuck in my head. Carry on, yes. Talking of big prize yeah. packages. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> hey, um, that's a great segue. Carry on. Uh, the, the, I remember Phil Gurin was telling us about uh, Power of Ten mm. uh, and uh, that he was... Uh, f- frightened that uh, they were going to give away the the 10 million dollar prize mm, mm. uh very early on in in that run but uh so somebody got to a, it was a million dollars and that pretty much was unspoiled i believe because but it was partly because it was the first show mm. and like word of mouth about what the show even was hadn't really got anywhere and i think there have been instances of i, th- I think there've been some jackpot wins in deal or no deal uk that haven't been spoiled so they've been able to just shush people up enough just mm. ask the audience politely then yeah, wouldn't you mind not speaking to the press because we want to try and keep it secret now obviously that's pretty difficult to do the first time somebody wins a jackpot but maybe it's the third or the fourth time it seems like it is sometimes possible not to yeah, not to have people blab about it, but I mean that's obviously the big problem. It's like even if you did, you as a production company don't want the results spoiled. You've got the, your your entire staff, the other contestants, and then possibly an audience to try mm. and shush up as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and, again, there's a point to that, which is you know if something's going to leak anyway, then control the story. You know, yes. take ownership of it. So we're back with Luke Hatfield and Daniel Jones. Now, it's quite rare that we have two guests on the show. So has one of you brought something in? Or have you both brought something in? What's what's going to happen? Yeah, I've got, so, I've got something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it, Luke. Can I go first? So mine is not an exciting piece of equipment. I have a few that I, I could have done, but uh, actually it's, uh, it's a book oh. that I always go back to as a slight source of inspiration, especially if 
finding something tricky or need to go clear my head about a particular audio challenge. And it's written by a guy called Michael Stavrou. I mean, amazing sound engineer. Um, he's actually from the, the music world, but a lot of the principles really do apply to, to what we do as sound mixers and sound designers. And um, it's called Mixing With Your Mind. Uh-huh. And I just find it a fascinating way to think about sound because we can do a lot of things with tools and plugins and what have you, but actually sometimes the best sound design ideas just come from the simplicity of getting in the moment and working out what it is you need to hear. And he's just had this philosophy of of sound mixing, and it's the idea that you want to create and tell the story with the least amount of voltage. And what he means by that is we might have a timeline with layers and layers of sound and bombs and things and all things going off and then you kind of lose audible sight of what what is the story here where is the story so then i'm always like right well what can i take away and i take away and i take away and i strip it back and then after all having all these 20 layers of sounds actually i can tell this story with one sound and that's what he means by the least amount of voltage that is 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 hitting the speakers and and then and then our ears mm-hmm. is ha- tell the story in the least amount of effort and energy and it will be clearer that's my little uh my little book yeah my little show and tell book can you still buy it you can still buy it it's it's quite a rare release so it's about 300 quid a copy now if you can find (laughs) one but it's uh it's it's if you can find it in a in a bargain bin get it can you do me a photocopy (laughs) (laughs) and did you have something daniel yeah i can add a electric blue usa fender stratocaster that i saved up for which i got when i was 13 years old and realizing that I wasn't that good at the guitar what I did get into immediately was making really weird sounds with that guitar and an amp and I that's actually when I realized I was just into really weird sounds (laughs) so it just I realized at that point that I'm probably going to go this way rather than be a flamenco guitarist because I wasn't uh, up to scratch for that and have you have you still got it I have I have I love it and look after it. And actually, that's that's gone up in value, actually. Yeah. Well, maybe if you sold that, you could afford the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for your show and tells and indeed for, for being on uh, the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And finally, if you've not listened to us before, welcome. This is the segment of the show where we have a little bit of fun and we're going to play our game of four-minute format uh, where we try and pick a random word and come up with a viable, possibly good format in four minutes of development time. I have a post-it note ripped up into six pieces on which I've written a word that I can't remember. Uh, So which one would you like to choose, Justin? I will choose number five. Oh, number five. I have a feeling that's a difficult one. From <laughs> Let's see. Oh, God, it is. It's quite hard. Divert is the word. Divert. Divert. There we are. Right, so. Best of British. <laughs> um, we've got four minutes beginning now. Divert. Okay, so what do you divert? You divert a river. Um, well, I've just come back from a, a jaunt up to the northeast of England where I part of the M1 was shut and I had to do a diversion for like two junctions worth that took me like 45 minutes and I was not happy. It's so it makes me think of the something to do with the structure of how you answer questions. Um, whether there's a way that you can divert somebody from the answer. Mm. Um, so it's like a diversion being a, uh, a, a, 
a way of covering something up and making making people think something is something else or taking them away from the main decision process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it might be that I I have to answer a question, but I've got to hide the answer in amongst a whole load of other things that divert you from spotting what the answer is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are there are some shows where um, you know the you get all the answers, but the answers are <clears throat> hidden amongst a whole load of other facts. Yeah. Um, so you're you're the diversion. There's also diversion <laughs> in magic. Does that help you? You being a magic person. Oh uh, well, it's, I hadn't thought about that, but yes, you're quite right in terms of uh, the thing about diversion in magic is that often it's you do something really, really obvious, and then because people think it's really obvious, they don't look at it. <laughs> There's a theory that like, if you don't want someone to look at it, paint it bright red, because right. uh, it's, it's so so bleeding obvious that it's a painted this bright red color that people still go, oh yeah, that's just a bright red thing, and then they don't realize that that's actually where you're hiding the secret. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's some sort of like a bait and switch is is kind of a, a diversion. I was just wondering about whether there's a sort of a thing about you're trying to do something very direct and obvious, like you have to walk from one side of the studio to the other to press a button and you win. But oh. the other side is trying to stop you from pressing that button. So they have to put in all sorts of manners of, of like um, obstacles or tedious tasks or uh, difficult things that so that the making is something that's seemingly very simple, mm. actually very mm. difficult. Yeah, now that reminds me. I've I've often thought about trying to do a parallel obstacle course uh, game, where if I whatever I do on my course, it affects your course. So in other words, if I effectively say slide a panel to my right in order to go through a space, that panel slides in front of you and forms a wall. Mm-hmm. So that the whole game is about not just doing the obstacle, but trying to get to something first in order to make it an obstacle for you um so effectively everything is trying to you're trying to as you say divert somebody from getting there getting to where they want to get to in time we're kind of running out of time um uh, yeah well i don't really feel we've got something to put a title <laughs> on to really <laughs> diversion it's the new show it's like unbeatable and uh yeah, divertical. There's, there's a whole trend of abble words. Yes, that was, that was what I was <laughs> heading towards, was an abble word, divertible. So, okay. There are any words like that. There's dividable, potentially, but there's already divided. Uh, well, divertible works. Divertible. All right. Well, unfortunately, that's our time up. <laughs> well, we so, have to fail sometimes. <laughs> yeah. so we, we usually do quite well on this one, but I have to say that is a that's a hard word. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely, it is. But like mm. you know, they're, at least it's it's there to, prov- to to prompt some discussion, and some of them are easier than others. But there we go. That was probably the hardest one you could have picked. <laughs> um, so don't pick five next time. No, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> no, never again. Well, anyway, if we're going to put a tag down on that, it's uh, probably could it be called something like Divertible, the uh, the game that makes easy things difficult or something like that. 
Anyway, that's it for this time. If you want to contact the show, you can email us at contact at tvshowandtell.com or we are still hanging on by our fingernails on Twitter. Uh, the handle there is at TV Show Podcast. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scruggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>